If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Roberta Blevins, and this is Life After MLM, a podcast where we work to help end the stigma of failure in an industry systemically designed for you to fail. Join us as we dive into the real-life stories of survivors, experts, and advocates as we debunk the common myths and fallacies of cults, frauds, scams, and multi-level marketing. Join us all month for stories of true crime, true con, and urban legends from around the world. Happy Halloween, Hans. Hey, Hanbots and Hanbros. I am still a little hoarse from last weekend, so please bear with me in this housekeeping. I'm very, very excited to bring this story to you. It is our last true crime story in our true crime focus for Halloween month, and it is really, really heavy, and it is really sad, but it is so unbelievably inspiring. I cried when we recorded it. I cried as I edited it. I think it is a really important message, and as a mom to a kid who is a freshman away at college... This story hit so much harder than I ever expected it to. We are going to be talking about the institutionalized violence on college campuses. And the amazing Emily Ragland is sharing her story on the 20-year anniversary of her assault. Like I said, it's a very heavy episode. We talk about purity culture, toxic masculinity, personal identity, violence, essay, consent, and working through trauma. If you have to take this episode in parts, I totally understand. But it is a really, really important message and conversation, and I think everybody needs to listen to it, no matter how difficult it can be. But if you are in active healing from SA and you need more time before listening to this episode, I also completely understand. I will let you know that when we get to the triggering parts in this story, there is an internal trigger warning as well. So if you want to skip ahead because you want to hear the episode and join in on the conversation, just so you know, there is that internal trigger warning so you can skip as well. I hope you all enjoyed the live bonus episode. I apologize again for it being late. Things happen. People's schedules get messed up. This month was so busy for me. And so being able or not being able to squeeze in an interview here or there, I just was like, you know what? It'll just be a couple days late. It's still here. People understand that life happens. And I really appreciate everybody's understanding on that. And I want to let you know there's no bonus story. I went ahead and threw the bonuses on the last episode. That's why you got double bonuses. But because Halloween is a very difficult time for Emily, I really wanted this episode to just be focused on her story, her healing, 
and her moving through trauma and getting a little bit more closure by being able to tell you all her story. Thank you so much for joining me this month for True Crime Month. You are incredible. I appreciate every single one of you so, so, so much. Stay tuned for the month of November. We have a cult focus and I am so excited because we have incredible guests and I cannot wait for you to hear their stories. Have a happy and safe Halloween and I'll see you next time. Welcome back to another episode of Life After MLM. It is the final episode of October and our true crime series. I want to thank you guys for being on this journey with us. It has been a very heavy journey, but I think also a really good learning experience in a lot of ways. And we're going to continue that education today. We're getting a little deeper. We're getting a little heavy, but I would like to welcome to the show my guest, Emily Ragland. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me. I am really excited to talk about this. We have not really talked about this topic or this sort of institutionalized thing. Yep. We're going to be talking about college and violence on college campuses. Yep. I've wanted to dive into the college space previously because I want to talk about like the labor exploitation that happens on college campuses. But before that, we're going to tell your story. Yeah. And you reached out to me and you said... The 20 year anniversary of my attack is coming up. I finally want to tell my story. Yeah. And I said, let's do this. Yeah. I'm so excited. I'm really excited too. So I want a big preface here, big content warning. Yes. We are going to be talking about violence on college campuses and the aftermath of that. And so if that is too much, we will see you next week. Yep. We're diving into cults next week. We will see you then. Other than that, Emily, let's start at the very beginning before you even applied to go to college. You're in high school. You're busting your ass. You have a future and an idea of what you want your life to look like ahead of you. Help us paint that picture. For sure. Well, thank you. That is well framed. So going into college, I went to a prep school in Florida It was very conservative, very white, very rich, very much not who I identify to be a part of my life now. But I was fortunate to live a lot of experiences I would never have. You know, I've been on a private jet. I've traveled to people's second and third homes. And I only say that because I think it's really important that we keep in mind this happens at all levels. And these experiences don't care about your race, your background, your gender, your identification. And so I I only bring that up to say I was very protected in all of the ways. I grew up very much protecting my body, protecting my virginity. I planned only to have sex when I cared for someone deeply. I was not judging those who felt differently, but that was my own decision not out of any religious background, to be honest, just out of my choice. And so I was a high school softball player. I played travel softball. I was the captain of my team. I was the class president. I was on speech and debate. I worked. I was a busy person in high school. I, you know, the downtime I had, I spent with friends that were 
always wanting to get me, but I never felt like anyone really understood me. I was adopted into an all white family who I love deeply, but who also just didn't know maybe how to prepare me for life as a person of color, life outside of the bubble I was raised in. I say a mostly white family. My sister is also a person of color who was also adopted from a separate family of color. And so I just was raised thinking when you do good, good things happen. When you work hard, life gets easier. When you follow the rules and the laws, you will be, you know, the world will be at your feet. And so I wanted to go to a school that wasn't any more north than Virginia because I still wanted to be able to come home to Florida within, you know, a 12 hour drive if life happened. I don't like being cold, so I was not going to go much further than where I ended up, which was already colder than I wanted. And so I ended up looking at small liberal arts schools. My high school class was like 53 people that graduated. Wow. Yeah, legit. Well, here's the thing, because I think back to my high school graduating class, and we had a pretty decent sized high school, and I still felt it was kind of small, and we had 400 graduating seniors. So <laughs> I don't even know if there were 400 people that graduated with me at college. Like, <laughs> wow, that's tiny, tiny. And with tiny comes protection and bubbles. You know, you live in a bubble. I, you know, was so busy. I didn't watch a lot of TV. So the reality of what's out there wasn't really reaching me either. And so I just wanted a small college that wasn't cold, and I wanted to play softball because I had played for, I don't know, 10 or 12 years at that time. And I wanted to do major in African-American studies. And not surprisingly, there were like two schools in the South <laughs> that had African-American studies. So I had like two choices. This was 20 years ago. I mean, how many schools I wonder now in the South have even African-American studies? Definitely not in Florida now that it's like illegal to talk about people of color oh man I laugh because it's embarrassing not because it's funny oh my god it's very embarrassing like it's, it's a reminder that we won't learn if we don't talk about what's really happening or happened but god forbid we make people uncomfortable by doing that so you know absolutely my choices were <laughs> limited you know being a prep school we had schools that came and visited we had visiting, you know, where you go to the campus and you check out places and it's very organized and set up. So I visited a couple campuses and it felt like a great space. It was small enough that I was able to walk from one side to the other without really worrying or thinking about it. It was somewhere I could stay on campus because I didn't really want to have to get an apartment or do any of that. So I planned to go there, live on campus for four years. At that time, I wanted to be a civil rights attorney. So my goal was to go be a philosophy and African-American history major and then go to law school. So what college did you end up choosing? So I went to Guilford College, and that's in Greensboro, North Carolina. Okay. And it's a very tiny liberal arts school that was actually founded by Quakers. And I knew and still know very little about Quakers, but what I knew and know was peace, equity, justice, 
were the framework in which they built. And that spoke to me as a person of color, as someone who identifies as queer, as someone who has a lot of life lessons that they have learned and are still learning and wanted to do so in a space that would be supportive of that in a way that would let me grow up without being scared of what that would feel or look like. And did Guilford have a pretty good like POC population and LGBTQ communities? So it was very LGBTQ friendly. I think that was probably the first thing that one would notice. It was very informal. We called our teachers by their first names, as is the Quaker way. So it just gave you that feeling of everybody's sort of on the same ground. There's no hierarchy. There's no, you have to listen because I'm the teacher and stop asking questions. It was very much ask the questions. We sat outside for class. I mean, we were pretty much as Quaker slash hippie as it could get there. There was a good number of people of color. A lot of them were athletes. And then a good amount of them knew of Guilford College because it was physically in the area of which they grew up. So, you know, it wasn't far from Raleigh, which is the capital, Durham, Winston-Salem, a lot of places where people grew up and wanted to stay kind of in the area without going to a huge university. So there were, you know, a diverse group of people in that way, enough that I felt like it was a good place to be. It would be a little different than where I was raised that was almost all white and I was the brown girl. So it felt like a chance to finally sort of be seen and be around people that looked like me and who identified as someone similar to me. And, you know, it just felt like it would be home. And it felt very much like home when I visited and officially moved there. That must be really validating to be in a space like that, to be able to see yourself, to be able to see people that look like you and act like you and want to do the same kind of things and believe the same kind of things in your community. For sure. And to be like, wow, yes, I belong. Like, look at all of these other people that are here for the same reasons. A hundred percent. And I wasn't around people of color until then. So, I mean, I went to college at 17 and that was the first time that I was around more than a handful of people of color. Wow. You know, I mean, it was to a point in high school where one of our teachers, the actually at my high school, she was the headmaster principal for people who don't go to uppity private schools. And she once asked the class, does anyone know anybody black other than Emily? Oh my God, what? I mean, that was the kind of stuff that was a regular part of my high school career. I'd say that came up regularly, that I was the brown or black person. When I say I needed to like process life and the reality of life and that I'm not like a a circus freak that's the black kid, going to somewhere where I even saw people that looked like my skin tone was a 180 from where I was initially in a high school or middle school, elementary school, any of it. And, you know, it was interesting because I was partially raised in Haiti, which is in the Caribbean, oh, wow. predominantly around people who were American and had moved to this specific area in Haiti to support a hospital that was there. My dad was an administrator. My mom helped with the fundraising side. My sister and I went there. And when we went to Haiti, we were called what's called Blanc Rouge, which is white red. We were, you know, white people who were brown 
And so we were Blanc Rouge. We weren't really obviously Haitian and we weren't white. Wow. And then when we moved to the United States, to Sarasota, Florida, which is, again, uppity white conservativeness, I was Black and the Black person. And then when I went to college, I had been seen as being too white because I was raised by white folks around white people, spoke this way, did not have much of a Black culture in my experience. And so then I was seen as being the white of the Black people. So it was very challenging to identify who I was. And what I really just needed and wanted was to feel like wherever I ended up, I could A, be there for four years and feel safe and feel seen. And that was it. That was really like the rest of it. What I went for was helpful. I wanted to play ball, of course, but I just wanted to feel seen for the first time in 17 years. I don't think that is too big of an ask to feel seen and feel safe. Yeah, that was it. So I went there in, let's see, as a freshman, I went early. They had like pre-orientation freshman stuff so you can learn your way around and make some friends and whatever. So I did that. My parents brought me up. They stayed an extra couple days, did the, you know, fun dorm room setup that you do. And then my parents left and, you know, school started in, I don't know what, September, August of 2003. Okay. So you move into the dorm, your parents help you get there. You're finally feeling some freedom in your life. You're finally thinking, maybe this is where I belong. Yeah. 20 years ago. Yeah. So how was that first couple months of school before the incident? Absolutely. So before what happened, it was rejuvenating. It was exciting. You know, I was playing softball, which is always like if I'm on the field, I feel at home meeting people from places I'd never talked to people before. I was, you know, really just trying to learn how to be a supportively caring human person. And so it felt nice to have some freedom. It felt scary to have some freedom. You know, I had been so busy and was always accountable to a boss and a teacher and a coach and a parent. And so it was a new step for me to sort of not be as accountable and to have some of that willingness to say, hey, what does that look like? Do I stay up till two? Do I go to bed? Because I'm, you know, an old lady who likes to sleep. So nine o'clock sounds perfect. All of those things that you get to do, you know, as you're learning about being a young adult, it, it felt great. Let's, I mean, we're going to start getting into it. So if you guys want to skip ahead because you don't want details, this would be the time to do that. Take us back to that week, really, the week of Halloween. Halloween on on college campuses can be a really fun time, lots of events and things like that. Sure. So your first Halloween on college campus. Yeah. All the events. Let's talk about that. Big event. Everybody's doing, you know, what you do in college. A couple people dressing up you know, in funniness, but mostly dressing up as cute with as little as you can. And, you know, just going out to meet people. And again, the school was so liberal. There were people dressed in all kinds of outfits with half of their clothes, some of their clothes, none of their clothes. I mean, I never imagined initially that it would even be a conversation that I'd ever have to have, that I'd have to protect my body. Like that just was not a part of what I ever was raised to do. 
nor what I thought would have to happen in that school specifically because of how it portrayed itself as being focused on justice, focused on peace and safety. It's a reminder that there's an ability to focus on something academically while not having the framework that supports that. And I think when we talk about trauma, that is such a huge part of it is the experiences are traumatic enough, but then the systems that allow it and then reinforce the victimization and the re-victimization and allowing the perpetrators to just float off into the distance without being accountable, that systematic willingness to just say, what did you do to make this happen to you is what I have fought against as a survivor and a professional since then. So we get to, you know, college, Halloween season, Halloween time, chill in the air, but nothing that won't stop a college student from still dressing scampily. So we're at a party and I'm, this part is very, there's chunks that I remember and chunks that I don't because what I later found out is that I had been drugged. So when I get to the party from there on, things are just sort of in and out. I planned to drink. I had a couple drinks in college with very safe friends in safe spaces at homes. You know, I was always the person that was watching teachers' houses because when they were out of town, I was very responsible and little did they know we'd drink their alcohol and then fill it with water. But that's okay. We'll just not go down that whole road. Emily! Um, to any teacher that may hear this and be like, I thought my vodka was pretty light. That's probably why I drank your liquor. Oh, so then we get to college and it is a free-for-all. It is jungle juice. I don't know that they have that these days, but in college it was you fill a bathtub with any liquors that people can get a hold of. Maybe some kind of juice to make it a little less garbagey. And then you just get a cup of it and you just go about your day. This person handed me a cup of that juice as I saw him hand other people and saw other people drinking it. So I had a cup of jungle juice. And the next thing I remember is waking up the next day Oh my! in God. his dorm. <sighs> so I don't know what time. I would imagine it was Halloween 11, midnight-ish. And I woke up the next day from what I remember around 10 or 11, naked in his bed, in his dorm, in his suite, which at our school, there's four bedrooms to a suite and they share a living space and a bathroom. And there's two people in each bedroom. So ultimately, theoretically, eight-ish people per suite. And I woke up in one of those spaces naked next to a strange person I'd never talked to at a school that I started a month and a half or two months ago. With 12 hours of your life missing from your mind. Yeah, gone. No idea. Oh my God. No clue what happened. And initially I woke up and was frantic, as you would be, laying in the bed. And honestly, I can't remember if he was still there. I think he was. I think he was also still nude. I was still naked. My clothes were all over. So I, you know, picked them all up and walked back to my dorm. And actually something that sticks out to me and I wrote about love to write. And I wrote a piece about when I woke up and walked back to my dorm. And I remember a school reporter 
stopping me and asking me. This was when the $2 bill or the the, the bills had just changed. And all of a sudden they were like bigger. I think the yeah. faces were bigger and the numbers were changed. So I remember them just asking people and I they just happened to ask me because I was walking back and they said, you know, how do you feel about the new bill? And I just remember answering, I don't give a fuck and walking <gasps> away and not being able to process right. <sighs> what is happening. I was still groggy. I was probably hung over and the drugs that I later found were, had been in my system were probably by that point gone or close to gone. So I go to back to my room and I do what you do. You shower because you feel icky. Yeah. So, you know, I showered, I cleaned everything. I tossed my clothes in the laundry and I thought, you know, what, what happened here? I know that I had protected my body and my virginity for 17 and a half years. There's no way that I would have sex with a stranger. There's no way that I would allow someone to even touch my body without verbal consent, without knowing them. I just, that's just not who I was. And even if that was who I was, and I say this to everyone because I don't, as they say, slut shame, I think still those words are condescending, but if you're going to have sex, absolutely, but do so with consent, always. And so initially I was terrified because I thought, oh my God, what if I'm going to get pregnant? Because I don't know if he used a condom. I wasn't on birth control because I didn't plan to have sex. I just was going through all the questions that you ask yourself. Did he like me? Is this someone that like, he actually wanted to be with me and I just maybe drank too much and put my guard down? Just all the questions that you would ask yourself when you wake up 12 hours later in a stranger's bed on a campus where you know basically no one, 12 hours away from your family, what do you do? Oh my God. I mean, and here you are thinking it's your fault. 100%. Thinking that you've done something. Oh, immediately. That you missed the signs yes. of this guy liking yes. you and all you needed was a little liquid courage and maybe this is how it's supposed to be and saving yourself. Yeah. Oh my God, Emily, I'm so sorry. For 17 years, like I just was not, and I didn't date in high school. I was too busy. I was just not the one. I didn't care about all that. Right. So like, I just, I never knew people did that to people. And so in my mind, when I woke up, that didn't even cross my mind. I didn't know what rape was. I didn't know about sexual assault. I didn't know about roofies and people drugging people. I didn't even know that existed. And so part of my challenge was not only what just happened, but like, it would be like me waking up and finding out I went to Mars. Like <laughs> there's no part of my history where that is even a conversation that has ever been had. No one ever talked to me about assault, about rape, about people breaking your body balances and your body safety and so I woke up and walked to my room and I spent that day watching Law & Order SVU, which I had always watched, but immediately was drawn to watching Law and & Order. And I think I proceeded to watch Law & Order SVU for a week in my room. Wow. Just crying, feeling like every episode was dropping hints at me that I never knew about. Just knocking on your cognitive dissonance door, yes. just saying, hey, Emily, wow. And I just sat there thinking, okay, so these things happen to people. 
all right, is that what happened? You know what? So again, you know, this was probably a Friday or Saturday because, you know, we were drinking. So then classes started back up in a few days. And because I really still didn't know what happened, I still had softball. I still had classes to go to. So I just went about life and started going to classes again. Realized this person was in those classes. (gasps) And he was sitting next to me. And I thought this is proof that maybe we're a thing. Oh, no. And so I would talk to him and he would talk to me. I didn't realize I was just chatting with my rapist for days. Like he hadn't just done what he did. And he's acting like everything's fine. Like he didn't assault you and hurt you. Yes. Oh my God. Just talking to me like it's fine. I think I was in four classes. He was in at least two, if not three of those four classes because we were both freshmen and it was just those initial classes that you take a few days in, you know, I got his number and he was texting and I was texting and we were talking occasionally. And it felt weird because I didn't feel like there was any connection, but I knew I had had sex with him. So I thought like you're supposed to have some connection when you lose your virginity to the person who you've lost it to. And I didn't feel any of that. So You know, there were a few days where I just kind of kept going to practice, kept going to class. And then one of the worst parts of the whole thing happened. And his suite mate came and knocked on my door one afternoon or night or something. And I opened the door and I was like, oh, hey, who I also kind of knew. I knew of him. He was on the rugby team. They were known to be pretty rowdy, fun guys. And he said, I need to tell you something. And I said, oh, God, like, what's up? And he said, you were raped. That was not consensual. You were yelling the whole time. You were crying and screaming. And then you kept quiet. And then you would cry and scream out again for help. And me and several other people were there. And you need to call the cops. And you need to press charges. Oh, my God. So here I am a few days after all of this thinking, okay, a lifeline. I know what happened to me now. I know it was not consensual, which then makes you spiral because this person's been talking to me for three or four days at this point, as if we're friends. And the whole time he had raped me and drugged me. And when I say this as well, I think it's important that people know when we talk about people getting drugged and people thinking that it's similar to being drunk, it's very different. You literally lose your awareness of everything. You lose your control of your physical body. And so I later found out from people that they thought I had overdrank and they were surprised because he was dragging me across campus and I was basically unable to stand up. Do you ever wonder how much of your personal data is out there on the internet just for anyone to find? I promise it's more than you think. Your name, contact info, social security number, home address, even information about your family members. It's all being compiled by data brokers and openly sold online. This can lead to a lot of problems, including identity theft, phishing attempts, harassment, and unwanted spam calls. But now you can protect your privacy with Delete Me. Signing up for the service is super easy. Just provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. 
They send you regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they found, where they found it, and what they removed. I got my report and I was floored with the results. Of the 105 data brokers they checked, 83 of them had my data. Delete Me then removed 173 listings of my personal data off the internet. And they make sure that it stays off too. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me at a special discount just for our listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com MLM and use promo code MLM at checkout. The only way to get the 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com MLM and enter code MLM at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com MLM code MLM. Head over to quince.com and grab yourself a little something something and support the show by supporting our sponsors. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and say hello to lightweight fabrics and classic styles. I have been taking advantage of the beautiful weather and getting outside for daily walks, and I cannot say enough good things about the Flow Knit High Rise Boyfriend Jogger from Quince. Seriously, running errands, doing school pickups, swinging by the farmer's market, or taking Jaja for a stroll around the lake, these bad boys are versatile. I love the deep pockets, the high waistband, and the internal hidden drawstring. They're quick drying, moisture wicking, antimicrobial, and the four-way stretch makes them so comfortable. They're made with 88% recycled polyester and the Global Style Standard Certified Yarn dramatically lowers environmental impact by diverting landfill and ocean-bound plastic. Not to mention using recycled claims standard approved dyeing, washing, and manufacturing processes with low water and eco-friendly dyes. They have become an absolute favorite, and you can save up to 59% off the high-end counterpart by shopping with Quince. Throw on a cotton modal scoop neck tee and some sneakers, and you've got a perfect effortless outfit. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com MLM for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com MLM to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com MLM. Oh my so God. dozens of people saw him dragging my body. To have people know this is not Emily right. watching this happen and no one saying anything. Right. Until days later. Yes. Oh my God. So in college, again, no one knew what normal Emily would act like or not act like. So no right. one knew that under no circumstance would Emily ever wander off with a stranger to their room. So it just felt like college-ness being college, people drinking too much. And he walked, I would say, 500 yards with my drugged body walking and holding me up. He's a small person, probably half my physical weight at that time. So it couldn't have been easy. And he eventually got me to his room. And I say all of that also to those who are listening If you see anybody, even a stranger, who looks to not have their wits about them, I would recommend asking them if they're okay and asking where they're going. And if they don't have answers, calling someone to help. Because even if someone had asked me, are you okay? I'm sure I would have rambled or 
just said whatever he told me to say, or he would have spoke for me or whatever. Who knows? And people could have asked. I don't know. I hear so many stories like in the true crime space about like, I was being dragged or I saw a figure shambling along and it's like, these are the red flags. Like people that are consenting to something don't have to be dragged across the lawn. hundred percent. Oh my God. And and of course, obviously if you're going to ask a rapist and his victim, if everything's fine, they're going to say, yeah, he's like, yeah, she just took drink too much. Exactly. Call the cops. Just make a report. Something weird is going on. I felt weird about it. I just wanted someone else to know. Does anybody know this person? Yeah. Does it like if you see something, say something? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my and, god. And you know, you're on a closed college campus. It's small. There's not a lot of us. And so it just went about as I guess typical college weekends go. And so then when I am told this, I lose all that is who I am immediately. I physically feel the identity that I had before it being gone. The loud outspoken student who was confident, who was a past president for three of the four years in high school, was the varsity softball captain from being seventh grade through high school. I was on the varsity team. Like, I was confident and capable and driven and ready to do all kinds of amazing shit. And the moment that I heard this happen to me and people watched and listened to it happen for hours, I just didn't know what else. I just, I didn't, I don't even have words to describe what happened other than the rest of my life started. Not the same life, not the same person. I was gone. And I have still not found that person 20 years later, but she gets closer and closer. But I know her and I miss her. And I remember she was going to take over the world. And then the world sort of took her over. He tells me this in my dorm. And he says, you have to call the cops. You need to go to the hospital. And I will tell them what I know. I will tell them what I saw, what I heard what he told me because he had talked to this person who had done this and the person had admitted that he had drugged me. And so I said, okay, great. At least I'll know what happened and there will be record of what happened to me. So I called my parents who were in Florida and I told them what happened and they got in the car and were on their way within hours. I didn't have a, a car because I was a freshman. So I had to find someone with a car to drive me to the hospital. And I went to the hospital and they treat you just like another emergency victim. And I wrote about this as well. The word emergency is just so inaccurate because my life emergency was just a tally mark to those that were in that room that day. And I could feel it. I could just feel that it was just so unimportant to anybody. So I'm in the hospital And they won't do a a rape kit because at that point it had been several days. I had showered half a dozen times because I couldn't stand what I thought was had happened to me being on me still. I had washed the clothes. I had, you know, all the things that you're not supposed to do, but that you naturally do when you feel like you have been physically taken advantage of. And you had never been told that this was a possibility. And if this happens to you, these are the steps you need to take. I mean, you learned that this happened to other people, 
by watching Law and Order SVU is how you realized this was something that happened. I didn't even know this was happening to people. Never knew. Yeah. Oh my God. So I remember sitting in the hospital by myself because I didn't know anybody well enough that I trusted anybody to come with me specifically. I, I got dropped off at the emergency room. Like I went by myself and I sat there and the doctors are telling me they can't do a rape kit. It's been, you know, four or five days at this point. I've showered. I've all these things. And they say, okay, well, the cops are going to come. They're going to talk with you. And then the advocate will come. And the advocate is the person whose job it is to support you and give you resources like, you know, therapy and groups and maybe connect you to a mentor, mental health support, all those things. So I'm sitting in the hospital and that person never comes and I'm there for hours and they never come. But who does come are two male cops. And the first thing they ask me is, were you drinking? The second thing they ask me is, why were you with people you didn't know? Hello, I'm in college. I don't know anybody. <laughs> and the third thing was, what were you wearing? Oh, all the questions God. you're not supposed to ask and all the questions that us as survivors or women or even men in theys often ask ourselves when we have been mistreated is what did we do to present as if this was an acceptable behavior towards us? And so I am in absolute tears in the hospital talking to these two cops, being treated like I'm the problem, telling me that I'm underage and they could legally charge me with drinking underage. But not the rapist. Not even asking who he was. They didn't right, even right, care right. to ask his name or anything. I had to tell them, hey, I know his name and I know someone who will validate all of what I'm telling you. And the only reason I knew it was because he told me what happened. Because I had been drugged and didn't know all of what was going on. So then... They spend time with me, accusing me, telling me, you know, that's what happens when you wear short clothing, you know, nope. at college, you need to keep your body, you know, covered because I will provoke men to want to be aroused. All the things. It was a Halloween party. Exactly. In a college campus. Like, what do you think is happening here? Uh, I mean, to even blame it on the clothes one is fucking bullshit. 100%. Yes. But to then, like, blame it on the scantily clad costumes at the Halloween party right. that the freshmen are having right. on a college where people live there and most likely don't live there normally and right. have moved to. Yes. And we all know school literally started six, seven weeks or whatever it is ago. Yes. So everything they're asking you seems rhetorical for anybody with a brain. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And, you know, I would love to say that we've learned in 20 years, but I was watching something on TikTok recently where an 11-year-old was tricked into sharing pictures of herself with an older gentleman. And dad found out and the cops came and the cops said, I actually, we could press charges because she's producing child corn. Right. CSAM. And the dad said, excuse me? Yeah. This older man is asking for pictures of my daughter. And the cop said, yeah, and she sent them. Which means that she is producing CSAM and she could be, charges could be pressed to this 11-year-old girl who was tricked to sending pictures to this grown man. Under coercive control. Yeah. 
we've not learned much in 20 years as it no. relates to policing, trauma, victimization awareness, and not re-victimizing the victims. To live in a progressive society where we really do think that we're helping victims and we really are learning, to know that the people that are literally paid to, literally it says on every car, protect and serve, are not doing that. No. And are re-victimizing us every single time we have to tell that story over and over again. A hundred percent. And here's the difference. You came to me and said, I want to tell you my story. Yes. I didn't come to you and say, do you have a horrific story about something that I can re-victimize you again? Right. We're in the frame where you're the victim 100%. as the survivor now telling your story from your perspective yes. and saying, this is what happened to me so that you can talk to your children so it doesn't happen to them. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, I mean, oh, Emily, I, I didn't know if I could adore you even more, but please continue. I mean, oh, so yeah. So the advocate never comes. I can't get a rape kit. The police are accusing me. You know, they say, okay, the advocate will call you or whatever. And I, you know, call the person to pick me up and I go back to my dorm. And my parents come shortly thereafter, because by the time I've gotten to the hospital and through the emergency room and all that shit, it's been almost 12 hours. So they come. And they get a hotel room and I just remember spending days curled up in a ball in a hotel room with my parents trying to figure out if I could do college. Now, mind you, I had worked really hard and gotten like a 3-4 in high school. I got a scholarship partially for my academics to go to this school. And I knew I wouldn't be able to afford to go without some kind of scholarship and support. So I was thinking, do I have to give up? playing softball, having this scholarship in a space where I can go to school for what I want to go to and for just because all of this has happened to me. And I remember missing a class or two and thinking, holy crap, like now I'm responsible for catching up because I couldn't walk. My parents had to pick me up and put me in their rental car and then take me to their hotel. And then I just sat there and watched Law & Order for days. What ultimately comes up and what I find out later is my parents had talked to the administration while they were there. And we find out that when the cops went to this person who told me, hey, I was there. I know what happened. You need to get checked. He said, I don't know what you're talking about. She made it up. Oh, my God. Clearly, his buddy had gotten to him and they had decided that they were actually not going to do whatever and you know he was going to be a bro and you know have his back and so the cop said you know now we can get you for filing a false report so here i am trying to debate with the cops that i didn't file a false report the person who told me what happened to me who watched it happen to me is now saying he doesn't remember that ever happening and that i made it up and that I was trying to date this guy and now I'm mad because he wouldn't date me. Because after these multiple days of him trying to sit with me and talk to me, I thought maybe that's what was happening. So now I am looking like the angry would-be girlfriend who's just not getting the guy. And now I'm just calling the cops on him just to call cops on him. Wow. Now, mind you... I went to this school specifically because they are focused on justice. I had worked two summers at the public defender's office prior, booking people, going down to the jail, because I knew I wanted to be an attorney and I wanted to be a civil rights attorney. 
And here I am being victimized by that exact system that I wanted to hold up, being treated uncivilly as a victim who has no one in hundreds of thousands, like in thousands of miles around her that she knew. So my parents ultimately ended up talking to the school and I am then given a letter that says I have options. I can withdraw and reapply. Oh, okay. Not really an option. (laughs) And at this point, it's what, November-ish, mid-November. So the semester's got maybe another month and a half left. I can continue to go to these classes. Now, remember, these classes are classes he's in at the same time, in the same building, sitting next to me. I can continue going or I can stay enrolled. But because my GPA is higher than his, I will learn on my own and meet with my professors and teach myself the rest of the semester so that I don't have to sit next to him. And then the school says, well, he's struggling with his academics, probably because he's raping people. Because he's a rapist, that's why. Oh, yeah, right. So he's struggling. And so they don't want to pull him out of his class. It's my burden versus his anyways. And it's not fair for him to struggle academically. And I had, at that point, A's in all of my classes. So I got taken out of my classes physically and had to then schedule times around life and panic attacks and nightmares to meet with these professors who didn't want to deal with a freshman who now had to come meet with them and they had to teach one-on-one. Okay, so let me get this straight. Your rapist gets to stay in the class. Yes. Doesn't have any charges pressed against him. None. Every person that the cops have talked to, well, I mean, really, I don't know how many they talked to, but the people they've talked to about this have completely denied it ever happening, ever talking to you. She's just the crazy chick who couldn't get it with him. So she's making up all these false accusations to try to ruin his life. That's not fair. Absolutely. That's all I'm trying to do. So now you have to remove yourself. The one with the better grades, who's also the victim of the crime, has to remove yourself from the class because they won't remove a rapist who is sitting next to you and intentionally harassing you constantly because he's your rapist, like full stop. Now you have to go out of your busy schedule already to learn on your own. Do you remember how much tuition cost at this place? It was about 30,000 a year. So $30,000 a year, you're now teaching yourself and then just meeting up with the teachers when you can to be like, am I doing this right? Correct. And they're like, why are you wasting my time? Yes. It seems like a much better solution for literally everyone involved to just remove the rapist. Yes. Like, instead of ruining everyone's lives, let's just ruin the rapist's life. Right. Yes. And these are two classes. So now as a freshman in college who has just been raped, I'm trying to learn two classes by myself on my own and trying to play softball and trying to maneuver as someone who just lost her virginity through a violent assault. And please, Emily, remind me again what the school's motto is. Oh, right. The motto is be the change you want to see in the world by Mahatma Gandhi. That's ironic. Yeah. A Quaker school focused on justice, focused on equity. We called the teachers by their first names. They weren't even Professor, Mrs., Dr., anything. They were Lisa and Jerry and Tom and Vance and 
all by their first names. I feel like a rapist running around on campus, at least one that we know of, at least one, running around on campus unchecked is not very peaceful and justice-y to me. Not so much. Not so much. And on top of it, what I then also learn, because I'm now having panic attacks and nightmares, I can't leave my room longer than I have to for sure. Which means softball's off the table because we travel. We travel to Virginia. We travel all over North Carolina. I definitely can't go into a hotel with a strange city, state, whatever, and go just wake up and play ball. So then I have to stop playing softball in the middle of the season. And I'm just done. I just have to tell them I can't. I can't play anymore. And so the little bit of peer group that I had, both in class and at softball, are now gone. And I'm by myself, learning, surviving. And this man is still, mind you, on campus. So I can't even walk around knowing I won't see him. There's one solution here. Why are we tiptoeing around the one solution? Right. And I am all for the justice of innocent till proven guilty. I'm all for equity in the justice and jurisdictions. All of that, 100%. But what I can't understand is when someone has come to me and said, this is what happened. And honestly, I have told myself, and I just looked at his Facebook a couple days ago and just was thinking, I wish the worst of you. Mm. This person, I think I hate him more than the man that did this to me. Because how dare you think that you're helping me by telling me what happened? And then when you could really help me and speak to the cops, you say, I'm crazy. Yeah. Why go out of your way to come to my room and tell me that you watched me get raped for the better part of, I don't know, eight, nine, ten hours. And then when the cops ask you, you say, oh, yeah, that chick's crazy. I don't know what she's talking about. Why do that? Karma's going to get that motherfucker. Well, you know, it's interesting. He is a PE teacher and a (gasps) and an athletic director in Boston. No. Yeah. So he's around kids. Cool. Yeah. Cool. So we've got rape apologists and really victimizers and liars just teaching our kids. So great. And the person that did this is abroad teaching. He lives in Europe and he's a teacher. And the rapist is also a teacher. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. So, you know. Oh, my God. Systems that hide and allow these people to be near the people most likely to be victimized. It's horrific. Yeah, which brings up the next part of our conversation is the institutionalized violence in these organizations. We see it in churches. We see it in MLMs. And when I say violence, I don't always mean physical violence. 100%. Yep. We see these patterns in these institutions throughout our entire life. And here we're seeing it in an institution that you're paying $30,000 a year to go to. And that was 20 years ago. It's probably like 60 now or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (sighs) Yeah. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the systemic abuse in institutions. Yeah. So, you know, as we've learned now through my story, not only did the school not want to go through this sticky subject, but they then decided to isolate me by not allowing me to go to these classes 
No, they did not share resources, which is another thing that blows my mind is whether or not you want to agree that this is what happened, you share resources. And so the least they could have done is say, you know what? We're not sure if we can press charges. And I would have said, I get it. I know the law. I understand that it's a word versus word. But the least you could do is want your students, your residents on your school campus to feel safe. And you would think that would mean giving me resources, someone that's going to check in with me, telling me, hey, you know, if you want to move to a different dorm and be physically further away from him. or I mean, any of these options, none of them were given. Instead, they said, you're a data point on our background. We're going to kick you out of the class. We're going to let you have to just drop softball, even though this is 80% of why you came to this school. And we're just going to hope that, you know, can survive the semester, much less the next three and a half fucking years that I'm on campus with this person. Wow. I pulled up rain.org, which is an organization that really deals with this. And one of the stats on their campus sexual violence statistics page is that one in five college age female survivors received assistance from victim services. Only one in five. Yeah. Only 20% of rape victims on college campuses got any secondary help and assistance aside from when they first reported it. 20%. That's it. Yep. That means 80% of those who were in these crisis moments were just absolutely ignored. Not only ignored, but most likely mistreated by those that they did reach out to. And people wonder why people don't bring it up, why people don't say anything, why the statistics likely aren't accurate that we know of anyways. It's because why would I speak up when I could just suffer in silence or I could speak up and suffer publicly where I will be victimized and re-victimized by a system that will tell me you shouldn't have. Why did you? It's your fault. You're not supposed to. Why don't you protect yourself? All these things that we would like to say instead of, why are we making it so easy for people to salt other people? Why are we making a society where the norm is that we just don't talk about it? Why do we just think that if we ignore these conversations, that they will go away? And it is the same when we talk about any of these challenging conversations. My rape doesn't happen any less often in my nightmares by not talking about it. And by talking about it, I hopefully can help those who also have nightmares where they wake up paralyzed because they remember a part that they didn't remember 20 years ago and now their body is reacting. I mean, I had nightmares where I'd wake up screaming. I had panic attacks where I couldn't walk, where I had to gasp for air and still do 20 years later. I still can't be in crowds. I still don't want to go to a bar. I still don't like strangers around me. I still don't like it if someone's near me and walking closely behind me. All of these things and this guy is out there living his best life for all we know. And I'm the one sitting here paying for therapy for 20 years, having to call crisis units because during COVID, therapists couldn't get you and I was having a panic attack and wanted to kill myself. This has been my life for 20 years. 
But it's a normal life for survivors. This is normal. This is not atypical. By no means is what I'm living through atypical of anyone who has survived an assault. No. And the statistics on rain are like staggering when you look at it, especially after listening to your story. Yeah. Because of the 100% of people that are raped, only 20% of them are going to report it to law right. enforcement where they're going to be able to get these services. And of that 20% out of the 100 that actually reported, only 20% of that 20% gets the secondary help. Boom. That. So that's even smaller, yep. right? Also, interestingly enough, 50% of college sexual assaults occur in August, September, October, or November in the fall, the beginning of the year. Yep. And that students are at an increased risk during the first few months of their first and second semesters. So not only every year at the beginning of the year, right. but also when you're a freshman, your freshman year. When you're most fragile, isolated. And then every beginning of every year yep. after that, you are at a higher risk. And nobody wants to talk about it. No, nobody. And then when you add on to it, those of us who are of color, anyone LGBTQ+, anybody who's transgendered, anybody who identifies in any varying ways are more susceptible because what I want people to remember is this is not about sex. This is about power. This is about control. So people often, when they are unwilling to put themselves in these circumstances and lucky for them, they don't have to, they want to think, well, if you wanted to have sex, you would just have sex with somebody. Well, it's not about sex. You're right. If that's what it was, he probably has sex with other people. And I'm sure he does. But if he wants to dominate and he wants to be physically able to dominate someone, especially because he is a physically smaller human, then for that to happen, he probably would have to drug somebody and then assault them so he could be in, quote, control. So I need people to know that this conversation is not about sex. This conversation is about consent, about boundaries, about safety, about trauma and power. Absolutely. And all of those things, like because as children, we're not taught about sex in in a way that's healthy. Right. We're taught about purity Uh culture or we're asked to rein it in and button it up. None of this is something that's in the forefront of our mind. Like you. You were adopted into a white family who raised you as a Christian in these wonderful institutions of education to be able to get here, but it protected you in a really nice little shiny bubble. Yes. And the second that you were in the real world, you learned the hardest lesson of your life. Yeah. And we think we're doing our children a service by protecting them from, you know, quote, the bad kids that talk about those things on the playground or the movies that have witches in them or whatever it is. But all we're doing is protecting them from the realities of life that are counting on them not knowing what's going on. Yep. That's a hundred percent. We are making perfect victims. Yeah. Bright eyed and shiny, bushy tailed And perpetrators because- The norms allow them to then just say, I will take what I want. I don't have to ask. And this whole conversation lately of consent being, do I have to physically say, can I have sex with you? And does she have to say, or they or he say, no, 
consent is even bigger than that. If my body or my language or my wording or my perception is that I don't want what you're doing to me, I get to say, back the fuck off. The norms are that when someone hears that, there's not a part that goes, oh, instead it is, oh, I'm going to show you. And when we talk about toxic masculinity, when we talk about dominant color, dominant nature, dominant norms, whitewashing, when we talk about all these things, we're not talking about just that. We're talking about the layers that lead to incidents like what happened to me being allowed because there's no part in our historical norms that tell us believe the victim there's only rules and laws that say if you can't quote prove it which most people who are drugged it's in and out in hours aside from maybe having to have a very invasive rape kit where they could maybe prove my hymen had been broken that just proves i had sex it doesn't prove whether it was with him or before or after All of these things that we have set up still require me to know, don't shower, don't move, don't wash yourself, don't change your clothes and do the opposite. Bring those clothes with you. Don't move your body. Brush your hair over something so that if other hair comes out, people are not taught those things. And they're definitely not even taught the basics of if you weren't sure what happened to you, better safe than sorry, go get checked. Because what we haven't talked about yet either is I had to do STI and STD tests for two years because many things don't pop up. I had to do HIV tests. I had to do pregnancy tests. I had to take a pill, which now is illegal in many states. So the morning after pill that I was given wouldn't have worked because it was more than 72 hours. So I had to take the pre-abortion pill if I wanted to not get pregnant by this man. So when I talk to people about how pro-lifers And pro-choicers are so different in lived experience. For me, if I had gotten pregnant, I know for sure I'd be dead by now. I wouldn't have lasted. And that's not atypical. I can't imagine growing something in me that was put there by the worst experience of my life. And we're out here as a country demanding that people just let that be demanding that teenagers who are raped by their cousins, uncles, grandpas, teachers, people they trust have to let this for nine months grow inside of them and then be forced to have that child and then make an even harder decision of, do I put them up for adoption? Do I put it up for family support? Do I keep this reminder, despite the fact it's not that child's fault, I will forever know that their existence is because of the worst day of my life. I don't see what world that is is comparable to take a pill so you don't have to go through that. I just don't get it. 
And thank God I it was when it was in 2003 because I'm in North Carolina when this happened. This is the Bible Belt of all Bible Belts. It's very possible when these things happen to people now, they wouldn't have that option. Because again, the morning after pill was only an option up to 72 hours. And I passed that by the time I got to the hospital. So I had to take multiple pills over multiple weeks to make sure I didn't end up pregnant or with an STI or with HIV. And then I had to take tests for HIV for five years. And your rapist is a teacher in Europe. Yeah, just living his life, homie. Probably doesn't even think about this day at all. At all. Probably didn't impact him really that much at all. Probably just moved on. Halloween's probably a glorious time with his family that he just enjoys the fall and gets to move on. And for me, I smell fresh cut grass and see the leaves change and my body automatically loses its mind knowing that the fall is coming, knowing that October's around the corner. I have a son now and I would love to be excited about Halloween, but a very large part of me is absolutely terrified that no matter how much my brain overrides and tells it that we're safe and I'm married to a wonderfully safe man who has all the inspiration and ability to protect me and the desire to do so to an extent that is probably problematic for anyone that threatens it. But my body doesn't always know that. And so that's the hardest part is I don't get to choose when I have a panic attack or a nightmare or I'm up for hours just frozen, screaming for safety, thinking I'm there again. So this process has been... I tell people, and you know, now my work is around the conversation of trauma. And I tell people trauma is not a singular experience. You know, we think of it as a car crash or an accident or even an assault. But the trauma is also that process after it that is horrifically re-traumatizing. And that is when people kill themselves. That is when people turn to drugs. That's when people turn to drinking. That's when... I'll be honest, I got promiscuous AF after this because I protected my body for 17 years on purpose and a stranger took it, so who gives a shit? And that's also a very common outcome of if you're going to disrespect my body and I've been protecting it for so long and now it's officially ruined, at least I could have some fun. So then I went overcorrected and was using drugs and drinking and all of these things because When I did my best to protect myself from all those things, it still happened. So that was then this realization of losing the Emily that was and becoming the Emily that is, was that person no longer gets to protect herself. It's gone. It's never to be returned again. And I talk for these last 20 years about that girl still, because I have moments where I feel her inside of me. I have moments where she comes out. I have moments where I mourn her being here every day, all day, instead of having glimpses. And I think that's one of the hardest parts is remembering who I was and knowing that I have to fight like hell to ever get back there again. And when I say fight like hell, I mean, I would self-harm. I was suicidal. I've had crisis plans for 20 years. I have people who know my safety plan, who know if they get a call from the therapist, what that means. I mean, I've had to set that up as a norm for me. Every job I've had has to know I have panic attacks because I can't just not tell them and lose my mind one day and not come to work. So now I have to talk about this and tell people this situation 
in situations where not only do I not want them to know, but I want to impress them. I want to be the new hire who's put together and strong. And instead, something comes up, like literally the smell of grass triggers me, and I could be in bed for days. I do want to tell you something, though, Emily. You are strong. Yes, ma'am. You're incredibly strong. Thank you. You survived the last 20 years. You're still Thank here. You. Yeah. You did it. Even though that guy tried to ruin you, you didn't let him. Yeah. You're still overcoming, but you overcame each obstacle as it came. Right. And you said, nope, I'm still going to be here tomorrow. Nope, I'm still here tomorrow. I have a crisis plan just in case, but I'm still going to, I'm still planning on being here. I'm yep. still here. And you are here and you are so brave and you are telling this story near the 20 year anniversary and getting to have another level of closure that maybe you didn't ever expect 15 years ago that you would ever get, that you would ever be here in this moment telling this story to people who are listening in tears. Cause I cried through most of this with you <laughs> people who are listening in tears, people who have been in this instance yeah. who are connecting with you right now and saying, I'm still here too. 100%. And you are incredibly strong. Thank you. And I adore you. And I am so thankful that you reached out and said, I want to tell my story. This is how I want to immortalize my healing yeah. is by telling you this story. Because so many things, even though it's not an MLM and it's not a cult, it is institutionalized abuse. And so many of the things that we talk about on the show hit in this episode in a different costume. Yeah. But it's the same. It is. So what I want to ask you now is what have been, for people that are listening who are not nearly as healed or as ready as you are, what are some of the things that you did to help process this over the last 20 years that were the most helpful for you? So the first thing I would say that was helpful was learning it wasn't my fault, which took probably the first decade, to be very honest. And that meant spiraling and watching law and order, watching criminal minds. I mean, very much part of my true crime obsession is in my ability to relate and feel that realization that it's happening to you. Like this is no longer theoretical. This is no longer a show. It is actively happening and I will have to recover from it or not, I guess, but my goal will be to recover from it. So the first thing was learning it wasn't my fault. And despite the questions that I was asked by the police officers, that I was asked by everyone else accusing me of X, Y, or Z, I had to learn to shut down those voices. And that was really tough because they were, A, the only voices initially because I didn't even know it wasn't my fault because I had never heard of rape until it happened. So I had to learn that it wasn't my fault. Then I had to learn it happens to other people. And something about that, I remember sitting in the first group of assault survivors, probably six years ago. So mind you, 14 years in, I'm finally able to sit with a group because I could, I just couldn't do group work prior. And I told myself, I said, maybe we'll just try something different. I've been doing one-on-one -on -one therapy. Maybe I'm in a space where this will be helpful. And it was sitting in a circle of other survivors and hearing their horrific stories and seeing them come back day after day reminded me that I would have to do the same, that I could do the same. There was something empowering about that, of realizing I'm not alone. 
I'm not the only one this is happening to. I didn't make an error in judgment. I'm not a bad person. This happens, and it happens on varying levels of economic ability, responsibilities. Some of them were well off. Some people had turned to drugs and were not well. And I remember sitting in that circle thinking this is the first time I felt like anyone understood in 14 years what I went through. So don't wait 14 years. And I say that cautiously because if it takes 14 years, then wait 14 years. But for me, if I had known that other people lived through similar experiences, I think I would have jumped into the group conversation of group healing earlier. And then I may have, again, I, I overcorrect pretty intensely. So I may have overcorrected, but I started really learning about trauma and one's response to trauma. Because what I really struggled with also was if my brain knows, why isn't my body corresponding with what my brain knows? My brain knows it wasn't my fault. My brain knows I'm safe. My brain knows that, you know, I, I've learned how to look around and protect myself and not take drinks from strangers and cover up your drink if you leave. My brain knows these things, but still my body would be around a group of people and immediately I'd want to vomit. I'd want to run away. I'd feel physically frozen. And so as I learned about fight, flight, and freeze. And as I learned about the trauma response and the way that trauma lives in our neurological system, I was more able to say, it's not my fault that I'm reacting the way I'm reacting. It is human reactions to stress, to fear, to worry, to trauma. And once I was able to learn that my neurons were reacting, my spinal cord was reacting, my brainstem was reacting. It just felt easier to put my hands up and say, okay, I'm not broken and unable to recover. I'm not at fault for how I handle things. And that became so helpful to me. And so now I do professional development around trauma, where I talk about how the systems traumatize many of us, how our body may react to that, and how the combination of those two may make us out to be the victim or to be the bad guy in others' perspectives. But I want to break down what leads us to get there and feel that way so that when we put our head on our pillows, those voices that are often in many of our heads, no matter what we do, is no longer saying, yeah, but still it's your fault. Yeah, but still you shouldn't have. Now you know better, but you shouldn't have known then. All the things that other people have said are slowly being muted because not only do I know that my brain cells and my neurons have changed, but now I've made actions to, to change them back. And just as our human brain changes with trauma, it also then corrects itself through resilience. And so I have focused on my resilience and rebuilding the neurological bonds that were broken through trauma calming my system so that it knows when it really is in trauma and when it is just reacting to a stimuli. And that's taken probably the last six years to really make sense of. Wow. You are so inspiring. I'm so like proud of you, how you overcorrected and you zigged when everyone else was zagging. And now you're working in the trauma space and you're helping inform others 
And like you thought you were going to do one thing and here you are doing something completely different and healing your own trauma while helping others heal theirs too. It's just, it's a beautiful ending to a horrific tragedy that had to happen for you to be the Emily that you are today. Thank you. Who again is very strong. And you know, I thank you for that. And one of the things that I tell people, and again, that maybe those who have survived through similar challenging experiences or traumas of any kind, doesn't not necessarily sexual even, is to remind themselves that, and I really struggle with this as a professional, the conversation of resilience is great. And I think it needs to be had. But what I tell people also is, it would be great to not have to be so goddamn resilient. And that's my struggle. That's my frustration is great. I appreciate the kind words and I appreciate that I'm resilient and I appreciate the reminders that I've made it through the worst parts of my life. I shouldn't have had to go through that though. And no one should have to go through that. And so when I talk resilience, one of the things I always tell people is, yes, let's talk about how to get to the other side, but just because you're focused on getting to the other side doesn't negate how disgusting and unnecessary it is that you even have to have these conversations, that you even have to learn how to shut down your neurological system so that it doesn't react to stimuli. I mean, it's challenging because my mental health has really struggled. And now I'm on meds that often numb me to a point that I really struggle to feel anything. And so it's taken a few years now for me to know what meds help me survive without overdoing it to a point where I feel like I'm just in a fog or that I'm just constantly neutral. And my support systems know that when I say I'm eh or I'm feeling neutral, we're in a bad space because that means I've shut off. And I have to be able to do that because over the last 20 years, if I didn't know how to shut off, I wouldn't have made it. And so when I have these reminders And I disassociated. So I have moments where I see myself being raped and they pop up in my mind every once in a while of me screaming, of me seeing people around me, of being held down by a black man. I feel these things that then stimulate and remind my body of a certain experience. And I have to learn and have learned when and how to react to that in a way that is realistic. And that has led me also to learning, smell one thing, touch one thing, taste one thing, hear one thing, pull yourself back to the world of reality so that my brain doesn't pull me out of it again. Because when it pulls me out, it doesn't go somewhere good. It only goes somewhere bad. And so I've learned the skills to pull myself back in. And that took a long time too, because I didn't know that's what was happening. I thought I was protecting myself, which I was but to a point where I then couldn't be in the moment. And I still struggle to be in the moment. I am a worrier. I'm anxious, of course. I have PTSD. I have complex PTSD and I have depression. But learning about what those mean has allowed me to feel more human than I have in a long time. And I tell people all I want is to feel normal. And to those who feel normal, appreciate it. Because it is an absolute gift to not have to feel like it's work to feel like you can survive. And every day it's work. There's not one day of the last 20 years that I haven't had to work to survive to the next day. 
And some days that work is harder. And some days the work is fun. And some days that work is a reminder. Some days it's little two eyes looking up at me, knowing that this precious little boy who I have created and am raising will be all the things that I want the best for him to be. And it reminds me that his mom deserves to be healthy. And one thing that I heard a couple years back that hit me harder than anything in a good way was, your son deserves a healthy mom. And when I heard that, my desire to prioritize him forced me to prioritize myself. Because if I want him to thrive, I need to be able to be there in a safe, supportive, kind, healthy way. And that means I still have work to do. And so when I do that work, that is what I remind myself of. Your son is the good that you got to put in this world. For sure. And you get to teach him to be a respectful man. Yes. Who understands boundaries and consent and all of the things that you didn't get to experience. Yeah. I mean, he's two and a half and we still let him tell us, put me down. I don't want to be touched. I don't want to kiss. I don't want to hug. Like, I'm just not the one who's going to say, you know, you have to hug your uncle because he's your uncle. Right. You don't want to hug. You don't want to hug. If you don't want me near you, you're allowed to say, mommy, move. And I think when I talk about trauma with people, that is what I remind them of as well, is these are lessons that we start early. Because people who learn boundaries respect boundaries. And when you respect boundaries, you probably don't assault people. And if or when you are worried that you might be in a situation where you're angry or frustrated and that feels like anything that is a solution, you're also then brought back to, I am in my own bubble. And I tell my son, and I've worked with people with behavioral challenges and trauma for 20 years now. I tell everybody, you have a bubble and that bubble is only your bubble. You don't get to let people in if you don't want to. And if there's anyone who forces their way in, you talk to someone about it. And so I found myself in a lot of abuse shelters, situations where I've worked, in trauma shelters, because I think the one thing I didn't know was that I was allowed to have a bubble. And the moment the bubble was popped, I learned the bubble even existed. And now I just ask that everybody who has breath in their lungs knows they have a bubble and that you're allowed to say, you are not welcome in my bubble to anyone blood relatives, not blood relatives, cops, all that stuff. And I think that's what I hope to leave in this conversation out of all of it. Your bubble, keep it safe. And if or when it gets popped by someone, know that it was not your fault and that there are people and resources out there to help you deal with rebuilding your bubble. Thank you, Emily. I have some rapid fire questions that have been edited a bit, obviously, because we're not talking about the norm. Absolutely. Do it. Give me a word that encompasses how you feel about your bubble. You know, I would like to say something inspiring, but the real word that I think of is tired. Tired. I'm tired of having to reinforce my bubble. Give me a warning to some parents that are listening that have kept their children in a bubble and are sending them off within the next couple of years, maybe unprepared and they don't even know it. Yeah. You know, I think the most helpful way to look at it is to, I tell people, I love hard conversations because I think that's where growth comes. And I think that's where reality meets humanity. 
And so I would say have the hard conversations. And if you're not sure how to do it in a way that is developmentally appropriate or supportive of a child's sexuality or identity, find professionals who can help you with that. I'm a parent coach. I'm a parent educator. One of the things I focus on with parents is how do we talk about boundaries, developmentally appropriate levels. And when we talk about high schoolers and college students, I think it's really important that we tell them there are scary people out there. It's not helpful to say the monsters don't exist. We know they exist. And if we don't tell people they exist, we are just as at fault when they pop out at them and they're ill-prepared to handle it. So talk about the monsters, have the hard conversations, tell them, you know, when you're out, yes, ideally you should be able to be hammered and walk down Main Street naked with no concern. Sadly, that's not the reality. So the reality is watch your drink. Be cautious that you don't accept drinks from strangers, no matter how much you think that they are your friend or that they like you or that you know them. Say no and say no loudly. And one thing that I share with everyone that I was mortified to learn in my journey is people don't respond when you scream rape. Scream fire. People respond when you scream fire. But when you scream rape, they turn their head away from it. So one of the things I've learned as a survivor is to scream fire so that people are more likely to help you than if you scream rape or stop or don't. What is, in your opinion, the worst aspect about pretending that these monsters don't exist and that this bubble is pristine and lovely? I'd say the worst aspect is how quickly you'll blame yourself when the bubble's broken. You know, if you don't know to look for monsters and you're attacked by one, you then realize, holy cow, maybe I war, what monsters like, or I was near, you know, it will immediately make you question yourself. So I think, again, the reality is that monsters exist. And when we talk about it, it could be monsters in an MLM who are greedy. And again, power is their goal. We talk about monsters in true crime who assault or hurt or injure people, power and control. I think we need to start having these conversations about people who are always confident that their solution's the only solution. We have to stop pretending that men know our bodies. We have to stop pretending that people who identify as they or them have the same needs as those who identify as he's or she's. I mean, I just think that we know there's diversity. We know there's difference. We know that there is Gen Z's in the 21st century plus some is real and it's happening. So in what world is it best to ignore that? I don't see that to be helpful. I think if we face things, we ask questions, we say, you know what? I don't know how to handle this situation, but I want to support you through it. What do you need from me? Or we go to professionals and say, hey, my kid's going to college. What are things I need to equip them with? And they can possibly share They need mace. They need a taser. They need to know, you know, their address so that if they're taken, they know how to get back. They need to have your number memorized. All these things that when I tell you in the moment, you'll wish you knew. I can't tell you how much I wish I knew a lot of these things before this all happened. My parents were wonderful and not wanting me to be scared of the world. But the error is if they don't tell me that there are monsters and that there is monster bait out there, I could unknowingly be walking into a den of lions covered in in meat and then be the bad guy 
for wearing the meat-covered outfit to the lion's den. So I, I just think that as a society, we're so ready to ignore hard conversations because we think that stops the bad things. It doesn't stop the bad things. It makes it easier for the people doing the bad things to do it longer and most likely more intensively. And most men and individuals who assault and rape don't do it just once. So if you get away with it, you do it more. And then maybe you do it a little more intensely. And this time you're holding a gun to someone's head or a knife to their back, or you break into their house. This comfort that we give people to break these bubbles doesn't stop them from breaking the bubbles. It means they get even closer to us every time they break it to jump and see how much more can I get away with? How much more can I get away with? How much more can I get away with? There's a reason serial killers exist. I mean, no one expects the guy next to you. Of course they don't. If you seemed like a serial killer, you'd probably not be a serial killer. If you seemed like a serial rapist, you probably wouldn't be a serial rapist. You're going to be suave. You're going to be slick. You're going to be a ladies man. Again, it's not about sex. It's about power. And people who want power will find it one way or another. And our system and our culture allows that to be easiest for typically those identifying as male. And that's problematic. It is. So I feel like you just answered this, but what was the hardest lesson that you learned from this experience? Oh, that people are evil. I think that was the hardest thing. I went into this trusting in humanity. In high school, I thought everybody wanted to be good and do good and be kind. And that if you were good and kind, good things would happen to you. And so learning that is not the case and that evil will exist no matter how kind or how good you are. I think that was the hardest lesson. I can do my best, but that doesn't stop evil from eviling. No. And all we can do is prepare ourselves and hopefully shine light on those who are those people and be kinder to each other when others go to you and say, I don't think I'm okay. You know, the conversation of mental health is just the fact that we aren't willing to talk about it. I mean, you go to a doctor when you have a UTI, you, I mean, we will be more likely to say I have a urinary tract infection than we are to say I have bipolar disorder or I'm depressed. That's a problem. You go to a doctor for one thing, you can go to a doctor for your mental health. It's a doctor. That's all. But we don't always put it that way. So I would say the hardest thing was learning that evil people exist and that they can compromise your mental health quickly in a way that you probably never imagined. And I know that this is a hard topic and that yep. you are healing. Yeah. But do you have any positive takeaway from this experience at all? Absolutely, I do. I have a lot. One was... In the experience at the college, at Guilford College, when all of this happened, I had my advisor and she happened to be one of my professors of one of the classes that I was supposed to leave and work on individually with her. And if she hadn't kept tabs on me in the way that she did and hugged me like she cared and fought the school on my behalf, demanding that I go back to classes the following semester, no matter what, and that he not be in those classes advocating for me with professors for four years when I had a moment because he was out on campus and I spiraled, she would email and say, without breaking any rules or confidentiality, you need to know Emily will get the assignment done, but she needs to be given an extra week 
And when I tell you without her doing these things, not only would I have not graduated, I probably wouldn't have survived. So she was the silver lining and she and I have stayed in touch. She's a phenomenal supporter of me as I've continued. So that was one good thing. And the other is I really think it led me to find my passion in trauma. You know, I've, I've lived traumas that I didn't realize were traumas. I didn't notice that not having Black people in my life was a trauma. I didn't realize that only reading about Harriet Tubman and Malcolm X and thinking that you had to be, you know, one to save the world if you're someone of color. Hearing all of these things as I grew up really made it hard for me to know how to exist as just a normal person. And so I'd say learning about trauma and the way that it impacts how you grow, how you handle life, how your neurons fire, changed me in a good way because it allowed me not only to stop telling myself that I'm at fault, but I get to have these kinds of conversations. I went to school and got my master's so that I can talk to parents about trauma, so that I can tell them that when your child is acting out, there's a lot of questions to ask and none of them are focused on blame. They're all about what is happening? Why are we worried? What's going on that is leading to this behavior? And that no one is ever bad. We just maybe act unkindly when we're struggling. And that's been my passion. That's If I can come up with one thing, all I could do for the rest of my life would be to educate people on trauma. And that's been a lesson that I speak from the heart about and have educated myself on academically and professionally and all that stuff. You are so inspiring. Do you have social media if people want to follow along? Do you make content or? So I actually took a break over the last six months from my business, but I do have a business. It's called Community Team, Community and Team Built Together. And that's where I do my professional development. I'm currently pulled myself off of all of that social media because I realized how quickly it can force you to feel like you're never doing enough. Oh, yeah. But if there are parents or professionals or a fellow podcasters or people who want a speaker, check me out on LinkedIn, I'd say is probably the best way to find me. Emily Ragland. Perfect. I will put all of that in the show notes so that anybody who is listening to this conversation right now and going, yes can find you and connect with yes. you and that you can make beautiful history with them as well. Because this story is so important and it really does encompass so many of the coercive controls, the culty things, yes. the institutionalized, just things that are happening that shouldn't be happening and, and that are being hidden and covered up for so many years. And this happened 20 years ago. Yeah. So I also want to say thank you for sharing this. And I hope that you got a little bit of closure. Yeah. I thank you for the opportunity. And, you know, when I tell you I fangirled hard when I first messaged you, it's not an understatement. I've been listening to Life After MLM and watch LuLaRoe and Lula Rich and all the everythings. And I reached out not only because it was becoming and about to be the anniversary, but I just, every time I tell my story, it takes a little bit of the guilt and shame away. And that's what I really love about it. And what I believe strongly is every time we tell the story, the shame is less and less. And so I am not at all turning away anybody. If anybody wants me to be a part of the conversation or just listen to their own journey and just be heard by a fellow survivor, I am here for it. And I'm trained in a way that you can know I will be trauma-informed. I will be trauma-focused and aware. 
I will be very cognizant of the way I react so that you are felt as a human individual who feels seen and heard and respected, all the things that everyone deserves, especially when they're going through this journey. This has been such an incredible conversation. And I just want to say thank you and congratulations too. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to Life After MLM. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. And follow us on social media at Life After MLM Podcast or visit our new website at lifeaftermlmpod.com. You can find all of the links to follow in our show notes. Life After MLM is produced by Roberta Blevins. Audio editing is done by the lovely Kayla Craven. Video editing by the indescribable RK Gold. And Michelle Carpenter is our triple emerald princess of robots. If you have a story about a cult, fraud, scam, or MLM and want to be on the show, please hit us up. We would love to help you tell your story and start your healing journey in life after MLM. See you next time, Huns. <laughs>